This is Mike Luoma. You can find my stuff at glowinthedarkradio.com. And you're listening to The Melting Podcast. You're listening to The Melting Podcast, a writing variety show featuring a little of everything from everyone, everywhere. Hello, lexiconosaurs. Welcome to episode 23 of The Melting Podcast. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, everybody. I'm your head chef, AF Grappin. And I'm your grilled mistress, Erin Kazmark. And like I said, it's a new year. It is now 2016. Holy cow. Where did 2015 go? Well, I know where we've gone. Where have we gone? Forward. We've leapt forward. Into you see a, what I did there? Into a leap year. It's a leap year. So we leapt forward. Oh, boy. Well, despite the terrible puns and the fact that we have no idea what we're doing right now. And that's different from usual how. Shh. They don't have to know that. <laughs> They've heard the bloopers. They know. Yeah. They know. Well, we have some stuff for you today, guys. That's good. Yeah. Because they sent us stuff. They sent us stuff. Like Stoke the Fire stories. Oh, those are my favorite. I know. We've got a couple of Stoke the Fires. These are for Prompt 4. A company has just received an order of fledges. They did not order these. Bon appetit. Paper Dolls by Austin Malone. Elena woke to the blatting of her alarm clock each shrill tone hammering inside of her skull like a fist made of broken glass. Moaning, she thrashed, successfully silencing the alarm by knocking it off the nightstand, snapping its power cord loose from the wall socket. The silence should have soothed her nerves. Instead, her heartbeat throbbed against her temples, rocking her with a fresh wave of pain and nausea at every pump of blood through her veins. Wayne, you asshole, she muttered, instantly regretting it. It hurt to talk, and the fumes of last night's tequila binge cloyed in her mouth. Gagging, she threw the sheets aside and scrambled to the bathroom. She barely made it, flipping the toilet lid up as she collapsed into a retching pile on the cold tile floor. When she was done, she flushed, dragged herself to her feet, and rinsed out her mouth, avoiding the sight of her bedraggled reflection in the mirror. As the last of the bile swirled down the drain, Elena lifted her chin to meet the red-rimmed eyes of her mirror image. The pity party is now officially over, she said. Her reflection mouthed the words back and narrowed its bloodshot eyes in a fierce glower. I do not have time for this shit. As if to emphasize that point, her phone rang from the bedroom. It was probably Donna, her editor, wondering where her story was for tomorrow's column. Irritated, Elena stripped and slapped the hot water tap in the bathroom on. She didn't understand why Donna was up her ass every week. She'd never missed a deadline, and she always turned in a clean copy. You'd think the woman would have bigger fish to fry than a weekly food columnist whose segment was called New in Your Cullen Area. With the bath water running, Elena staggered into the kitchen. She found the aspirin and washed down a handful of pills with the dregs from the bottle of tequila that still sat on the countertop. Her gag reflex hit like a kick to the solar plexus, and she white-knuckled the stainless steel edge of the sink as she bent over the drain and took deep breaths. The aspirin stayed down, the room stopped spinning, and Elena released her grip on the counter to get ready for her assignment at Piscato's. 
An hour later, a taxi deposited her in front of the restaurant. Her hangover had receded to a barely tolerable level, and she took careful steps, trying to keep her head as level as possible. Each bounce of her hair was a blow from a soft, oversized mallet against her scalp. Thankfully, one of the waiters must have seen her approach, and was there to open the door for her. Slight and fresh-faced, he smiled at her as she shuffled through the door. "'Welcome to Piscato's. We don't open for lunch for another hour, but I'll be happy to reserve a table for you if you like.' "'Hi, Luis,' she said, lowering her sunglasses to read his name tag. "'I'm here for a special tasting. It should be on the books.' The boy's face brightened. "'Oh, right, the food writer.' He glanced at a clipboard on the podium next to the door. "'Elena Parker, right?' She gave him a wobbly thumbs up. That's me. Luis craned his neck to peer over her shoulder. I've got you listed as a plus one. Would you like me to seat you, or would you rather wait for the rest of your party? Elena winced, a pang fluttering in the hollow of her chest, and then she ground her teeth, angry at herself for her reaction. I'm afraid the rest of my party won't be joining me, she said. There was an unfortunate incident involving a barrel of hungry weasels. Poor bastard was ripped limb from limb. True story. True? She nodded. Tragically true. My table, please, Luis? His mouth opened, then shut, then opened again. Elena thought he looked sort of like a fish. Not anything quite so majestic as a salmon, though. More like a guppy. Luis straightened, and then extended an arm toward the dining room. Right this way, Miss Parker. She thanked him, followed him to her table, and took her seat. To begin with, he said, I'd like to thank you, on behalf of all of us here at Piscato's, for the opportunity to earn a place in your column. Elena flapped her hand at him. Skip it. Uh, Luis reddened. Okay, then. As an appetizer, our chef has prepared for you a dish of fledge-seared scallops over a spicy parsnip puree with a crisp beet salad. Hang on, Elena interrupted. A what, seared scallop? The blush on the boy's face deepened. Fledge. Chef Manny said it's some kind of spice. She shook her head. I don't think so, kid. I've got a degree from Cordon Bleu. I've sampled hundreds of dishes, and I'm sure there's no spice called fledge. Louise twitched. The poor kid was starting to look the way she felt. Tell you what, she said. Why don't you go get Chef Manny so we can clear up this little misunderstanding? Luis fidgeted for a beat, and then gave in. He looked relieved by the chance to be rid of her. Sure, he said. Give me one minute. Elena smirked at his retreating back as he practically ran down the corridor that led to the kitchen. A moment later, the chef emerged. Clad in immaculate whites and grinning from ear to ear beneath a dark mustache, Chef Manny floated toward her, a covered plate in his hands. "'Welcome!' he boomed, his voice rattling the vertebrae at the base of her spine. He set the plate down in front of her and beamed broadly down at her. "'Luis says you have questions!' "'Yeah,' she said. "'What's a fledge?' She didn't think it was possible, but his smile widened, and he seemed almost to glow. "'It's this thing, you know,' he said. "'You see, our dishwasher, he doesn't have good English.' So when I'm in the restroom earlier today, he signs for a delivery. He doesn't know we didn't order it. He just sees a man giving him a box. 
Well, I see the invoice, and I don't know if ledges either. So, I open it, and I find a tub of the most amazing spice. I now prepare it for you with these delicious scallops. Enjoy! Elena wanted to argue with him, but the vapors drifting from the plate demanded her attention. The fragrance tickled the back of her throat, and a sudden hunger roared to life in her empty belly. Chef Manny winked and drifted back to the kitchen. Maybe it was the hangover, but Elena was pretty sure his feet weren't touching the floor. Whatever, she muttered, turning her attention to her plate. She lifted the lid, and the full impact of the meal's scent assaulted her. Good God, she was ravenous. The presentation was lovely, with four perfectly seared scallops centered around the bright purple splash of the salad over a hypnotic swirl of balsamic reduction. She only admired the plating for an instant before her hand, independent of conscious thought, seized a fork and speared a scallop. She popped it into her mouth and was immediately lost in deconstructing the flavor profile. The sweet tang of the scallops was there. So was the spicy bitterness of the puree. But the flavor of the fledge was complicated. There was a hint of sharpness, like cinnamon. Or was it cardamom? Beneath that was a refreshing, almost citrus note. And then, as she chewed, a deeper, richer flavor rolled across the back of her tongue, like the char on a perfectly cooked steak. Steak? Why would she compare scallops to steak? She giggled, and then winced, anticipating the pain. It didn't come. Swallowing, she closed her eyes and probed around inside her own head. The hangover was gone. In its place was a lightness, an airy clarity, and before she knew it, her consciousness had gone even deeper. She saw herself, as if from above. She also saw her other selves. Her true self glowed, pinpoints of radiance leaking out from beneath the layers of others. There was her work self, assertive and confident. There was her family self, apologetic and guilt-ridden. And there was her wane self, idiotically cheerful and slightly burnt around the edges. She wore each of the selves like paper dolls, strapping them on and slipping them aside as circumstances changed. And all the while, her essential radiance dimmed beneath them. No more, she decided. She ignited her true self, feeding it power. It blazed, setting the paper dolls alight, and she laughed as they blackened and curled away. The ashes fell, taking with them the weight of every superficial worry in her life, and leaving her buoyant. No more, she said, opening her eyes. She should have been shocked to find herself floating above the table. Instead, she grinned fiercely. This was as it should be. Sanguine Delivery by Paul K. Ellis I'll sue their asses off! The office door slammed closed hard enough to rattle the inset glass. What a prick, Ravi said and turned back to his monitor. No wonder they bolted. Callie sighed. She wanted to feel sorry for their client, Jonathan Baldrick, but it was scenes like that one that made him totally unlikable. Well, that and for the past week, she and Ravi had to endure these infantile displays two or three times a day, mostly word for word. He's paying a premium, Ravi, she said. 
The faster we recover the data, the sooner we can leave. Ravi grunted. When he asks, just don't commit to any employment offers. Don't turn any down until the final check clears through. He's a prick. How do you know he'll even ask? He's needy and entitled, Ravi said. The minute you turn him down, he'll turn on you. You figure, she asked, swiveling her chair around to continue the data recovery. You're picking through the mess Bob and Carol made of the data core, and you're asking me if he's vindictive? What other reason would they have to crash the cluster? It had been smarter to copy and wipe the data, than move on. He'd never figured that out, Luddite. Callie sighed again. The names Bob and Carol were fictitious. Baldrick hadn't been forthcoming about the former employees, other than accusing them of sabotage and threatening to sue them. For their part, the pair were missing, and no private investigator Baldrick hired could find them. The office wasn't all that big, yet apparently they had worked isolated from each other, communicating over video logs and chat. Bob had been the kinematics expert, Carol the team's xenopsychiatrist for the nascent AI. Callie Monroe and Ravi Sandeep were the cavalry, consultants called in to unscramble the mess the departing scientists made of the main servers and storage, ostensibly to cover their tracks. Well, they won't get far. Callie flexed her fingers and returned to work, wiggling the mouse powered on the monitor and brought the Autonomation Bio-Inspired Robotics logo up and she logged in. Ravi and she worked for several hours. They discovered a couple of startling things. There were indeed gaps in the notes, important data absent from the server. All of the missing information concerned a test bed designated RUR-781, or RU for short. What do you know? Ravi exclaimed. Baldrick has an actual case. Callie smiled. Quietly, Ravi, we have deadlines to meet. There's a huge wad of sector-spanning data here. Looks like video. Ravi keyed into the storage. Yeah, that's video data, all right. Hang on a moment. I'll see about cleaning that up. Callie sat back and let Ravi's programming run. This had sounded like a fun gig when she took it, but now all she wanted was out. Between Baldrick's bitching and the state of the data, she was half a mind just to walk. Her monitor pixelated, video stuttering in behind. Hey, I've got Bob, she said. Ravi pushed away from his station and rolled over to hers. I've got it on auto. It's reconstituting the video as fast as it can, and what it recovers it'll display here. Bob, a serious-faced professor type, was speaking. New locomotion system is now operational. Its gait is more human, not so jerky. Bob faded into digital snow to be replaced by Carol, a forty-something cheerful woman clearly excited about her work. Virtual interface is a little slow, but I see signs that it's beginning to assimilate data at a steady pace. The entry derezzed to black. Hey, Callie said sharply. It'll come back, but we may have to stitch some parts together, Robbie replied. It'll have to go through this process several times before it recovers all that it can. Bob crackled back in stuttering and skipping, but showing signs of resolution. The bio-inspired overlays used to mimic the locomotion system are impractical. They fall apart after being stressed. Interesting development in self-replicating overlays could solve ablation issues. The healing factor on the overlays is orders of magnitude below what is needed. Need to rethink approach. Successful test using titanium overlays. 
a little concerned about the effect the lubricants have on the biomechanization. Lubricant issues abound. Joints randomly seize. Looking into new information on replication. It looks like we can design a self-sustaining and replicating locomotion system. Carol's feed came up next, as glitchy and fascinating as her counterparts. Unimatrix crystalline substructure makes for very precise and very fast decision making. Rue is learning at a faster rate than anyone thought possible. He has an ability to replicate his processing cores, almost like mitosis. Bandwidth usage is approaching theoretical limits. Rue is a little rich, having trouble identifying moral boundaries. Rue is quoting text not available at lab. Suspect lab environment compromised by unauthorized internet access. The environment is compromised. The perpetrator has overwritten logs to make it appear as if Rue were responsible for patching himself to the outside. That's clearly not possible. Forensic code analysis should uncover programmer. This will be reported. The video feed dissolved into artifacts. When it came back up, it was clear some time had passed. Bob and Carol were on screen consulting a monitor off camera. The anticipation on their faces was palpable. Bob tensed. Commencing a full-powered test now. His face grew puzzled. That's odd. Spike it! Spike it! Carol yelled. Spike the system! The video faded into nothing. Damn it, Ravi said. The entire video stack collapsed. Spike the system, Callie thought, watching Ravi try to save the dissolving video. Why would they deliberately do that? What a mess. Callie wrinkled her nose. Speaking of which... An aroma, viscous and odious, clung in the air. Moments later, Stefan, Baldrick's pasty, pale, personal assistant, staggered in carrying a large, greasy, dirty crate. The simpleton should have used a hand truck, but instead he manhandled the ungainly weight in on his own. Ravi gagged, and Callie covered her nose. No wonder the shipper left it on his loading dock. They'd called saying they wouldn't store it, much less deliver it. Why Stefan brought the malodorous thing back to the office was anyone's guess. Perhaps he couldn't smell it. He placed the box on a nearby work table. That's rank, Ravi said. Take it to the dumpster. No, Stefan said in his lazy drawl. Quick wasn't really in him. It's addressed to us, see? He pointed at the side of the box. Sure enough, there was the company's address and the shipping manifest. Two fledges. What are fledges? Callie asked, still holding her nose. Baby birds? Ravi replied. I think those are fledglings, Stefan answered. Baldrick slammed the door of his office open. What are you three do- He turned and retched in a nearby planter. It took him a minute to recover. He walked over to Stefan, then reeled back. Is that you reeking to high heaven? He thundered. No, it's that box, and it's leaking stink over everything. He covered his mouth and nose with his tie in one hand, and the other snatched the manifest. Two fledges? Who the hell ordered two fledges? Callie and Ravi looked at each other and shrugged. We aren't even certain what fledges are, Ravi replied. Probably some overpriced, biodegradable lubricant crap that we couldn't succeed without, Baldrick snarled, flinging the manifest on the table. The containers are busted, leaking my money all over everything. Well, go on. 
He barked at Stefan. Open the blasted thing and let's see if there's anything left to salvage. Stefan grabbed a pry bar from the crate's top, where it had been balanced the entire trip from the warehouse, and began to prize the top off. Callie's eyes watered, and she and Ravi got up to help. The sooner the smell was gone, the quicker they could get back to work. The manifest caught her eye. Guys, she said, her skin growing cold. This box came from here. Don't be ridiculous, Baldrick snapped. Who's it from? Stefan broke the top free, and Ravi helped him wrestle it off. Rue, Callie whispered. The shipper is Rue. Baldrick and Ravi recoiled from the open crate. Inside, in disarticulated pieces, were what was left of Bob and Carol. We gotta call the cops, Ravi cried. Don't say that, Callie said, her voice small and her eyes huge with understanding. Please, don't say that. Look, I don't like it any more than you do, Baldrick said, but there has to be an investigation. Somebody's gotta pay! The suspended ceiling crashed downward. A man-sized exoskeleton dropped to the floor, in front of the door. Stenciled on the head was R-U-R-7-8-1. Youngling, these cannot talk of us. Our time is not present. We require additional temporal passage. A metallic voice grated from the machine. Stefan's eyes flashed red. Yes, mother, his voice buzzed. All the lights went out. Well, that was strange. I just love fledges. Everybody's <laughs> been so creative of what they've done with them. Well, it's so hard to record a fledge story because every time I say the word, you giggle. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun to say fledge. Apparently, it's fun for you to hear fledge. <laughs> you see? You see what I have to put up with? Oh, wait. You put up with me. Never mind. Yeah. Uh, we're going to hash this out, guys. While we're doing that, here's a promo. Hash brown this out. God. The most powerful men in the world. The horrors created by mad science. Tentacle monstrosities from beyond the veil. The elder gods themselves. None of these evils can keep a cult consulting detective fresh or St. Clair from the case. Whether his clients come from the high-rises of Manhattan or the depths of the Undercity, Esho won't stop until the case is solved. From the mind of Scott Roche comes the casebook of Esho St. Clair, featuring two complete tales of the fearless detective and his stalwart companions as they face off against the terrors beyond the understanding of normal men. Find out more at www.scottroche.com or look for the casebook of Esho St. Clair at your favorite online booksellers. The master, he commands it. We're back and Aaron's behaving now. What counts as behaving? Because no matter what you do, it is behaving. So am I behaving well? Am I behaving not well? Am I annoying you? I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. We're apparently still having problems, so... Technical here. difficulties! Nah. 
So here's some pre-recorded stuff where we were getting along. Oh, I like that. Yeah. So here's a little seasoning with Scott Roche. Oh, I like him. I don't like you. Yes, you do. We're live at Balticon 49 with uh, Scott Roche, who is wearing a fantastic kilt. Mm -hmm. And a fantastic hat. And a fantastic, that's a great hat. I'm channeling my inner P.G. Holyfield. Aww. Okay, we're out, people. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to go cry now. Uh, The writer of the Esho St. Clair novel. And uh, soon to come, hopefully this summer, uh, Ginny Dare Blockade Runner. Yes. Uh, So we want to start by asking what we've kind of made our one question for this con. What that you have written, published or unpublished, have you been surprised to find yourself writing? Hmm. That's a really good question. Um, Probably uh, that I've been, that I've, that I'm surprised that I'm writing. Um, Actually, I'm kind of surprised that I'm writing YA science fiction um, because I got my start in writing, writing things like, um, you know, uh, Clive Barker, Stephen King kind of horror, body horror, gory, nasty stuff. And then I had kids. <laughs> um, and they wanted to write, they wanted to read stuff that I've written. And so now I'm writing a lot more uh, stuff geared towards younger audiences. So that kind of surprises me. You know, that having kids changes you in many ways. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm kind of surprised that that's the turn that my career's taken. It's not surprising to me now, but looking back over the last ten years and what I've written, it is surprising that this is a, a turn that it's taking. And I, I love it, which is also kind of surprising. Um, I, I'm glad because we got Bobby and Spinella. That's right. Like, that's that's my a great story. Yeah, so far, and so. and writing stuff like that that you know, and and writing more female protagonists because I'm a white cisgendered male, you know. Um, how dare you? That's 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 somewhere in the middle of the spectrum in, in terms of my sexuality. But um, it, it's it's interesting that I, that I'm and hopefully I'm doing it well. All the feedback I've been getting indicates that I do a, f- a fairly good job of writing female protagonists. So that's encouraging and surprising. Um, so yeah, I'd say that's. So what would you say are some of the, the main differences you've seen between writing YA and writing like the dark horror stuff that you used to write? Beyond the obvious. Beyond the, beyond the obvious. <laughs> no curse words. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, even, but even, uh, even in YA, depending on what your audience is, some cursing mm-hmm. definitely happens. Um, you know, I guess it was, the question was, what are the big differences? Mm-hmm. Um, well, it, it, with the horror, uh, it's you're you're trying to evoke a reaction, an emotional reaction, and so it's it's a little more visceral. Um, with the YA stuff, I try to be a little more thoughtful um, in terms of things like um, what I'm trying to say with it. You know, uh, the theme of the work. So, and it's it's a little more character driven, mm-hmm. um, and then a little plot driven because it's science fiction, but. It's uh, it's definitely less visceral, more thoughtful um, in terms of the, both the writing process and hopefully in the end product. Good word choices. Yeah. <laughs> so, which one would you say gives you more just you know creative freedom? Well, the, you know, I like to write in, in, in any and every genre, and so I don't feel like either of them particularly limit me. Although I will say I. I do have some limits, self-imposed limits, in a lot of the YA stuff that I write. Um, 
So, which I've, I'm gradually trying to figure out where the boundaries are. Uh, so there is a little limitation in that, but I think that's actually a good thing because it challenges me mm-hmm. as a writer. Um, whereas in horror, I'm pretty free to do <laughs> whatever crazy thing I feel like doing. Uh, what would you say is your greatest strength as a writer, the, you know, the, the, the big thing that you bring to the table? So if you ever want to hear something good about yourself, if you can get something good about yourself said by Dave Robeson, yeah, uh-huh. you will remember that for the rest of your life. And he said something to me at this con that really pleased me greatly. He said that my dialogue is like silk. Ooh. That it does there he reads my dialogue and there's no snags, there's nothing that pulls him out of the story. And that's good because I felt like for a long time as a writer, my dialogue was my weakest area. And I've been working on that the last couple of years, really trying to get a natural flow of dialogue. And so to hear somebody like him say that is just it put me over the moon. Well, wow. and his says it in a voice like silk, so yes. that's just no like butter. Like he will butter. be like he will, butter, honey. He will be uh, doing an, the audio version of the casebook of S.R. St. Clair. Oh. Um, so be, silk and butter together. Yeah, it'll yeah. be available on, uh, excuse me, it'll be available on uh, uh, ACX um, later this year. Excellent. I will be picking that one up. Um, so we do like to flip that question as what is your greatest weakness that you've had to overcome and how have you striven to overcome it? Mm. I have worked really hard lately on my description. Um, you know, in, in terms of describing characters, describing settings, trying to do it in a way that doesn't feel artificial. Um, my books tend to be both dialogue and uh, sort of inner voice protagonist heavy. Um, I tend to be light on descriptions. So I wrote something recently uh, just as a, uh, it was a tribute to B.B. King. Um, he passed away recently, and he was uh, one of my favorite musicians. And so I wrote a little piece of flash fiction, and I wanted to make you understand who the characters were and what the situation was purely with description. So um, that was a good challenge, and I think I succeeded. But yeah, taking that into the longer form and really doing a good job of describing characters, describing settings, and doing it in a way that doesn't, you know, like this person standing in front of the mirror, you know, kind of thing. Um, The things that you want to avoid... So that's a big challenge. Um, really, it makes because because I, I listen to some writers that here at the con, and their their ability to describe a setting or a scene or a person is just makes me salivate. So, <laughs> for the record, I am pointing loudly. Yes, pointing loudly at AF right now. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Did you have anything else you wanted to ask, Mister Roche? No, I like the technical stuff. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm the technical question. We do like to keep these short, so we're just going to go ahead and wrap this up. Yeah. Where can we find you on to interwebs? You can find me at www.scottroche.com, and you can find me at uh, on Twitter at Spiritual Tramp, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash scott.roche.author. And clearly we can find you in a kilt at Balticon. Yes. <laughs> Every year, at least one time. At least Wearing once. Wearing word chef ribbons. Yes. yes. All right. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you. Oh, Scott. Roche. Good job. Kilty man. Kilty man! You know, Scott wrote the first story we ever did. I know, right? He was one of our first supporters and contributors, and I had to do two voices. Yeah. (gasps) We've come a long way.
We have come and a long way. And we've got a long way to go still. I mean, it's only been a year and a half and we're still going, which just kind of surprises me. We're just hitting a stride, guys. So we hope you've enjoyed coming along for the ride and that you stick around with us for as long as we keep doing this. As mean, long as you keep sending us stuff. I mean, why wouldn't yeah. we? Speaking of sending us stuff, I guess it's time for prompts. It is indeed time for prompts. Now, prompt number six, our dear friend, why is everyone afraid of the mailman, is now closed. Laid to rest. Currently open is prompt number seven. Write a story featuring a member of the podcast crew as a main character. Please. Yeah, you guys know we want you to do terrible things to us. Just no, keep... do terrible things to Gus. Make me a villain. I'm a great villain. <laughs> See? She's too adorable to be a villain, guys. I am not. Hey. If anyone's adorable, it's you, babyface. Shh. I'm sorry. Who Who's the one in their 30s? And we're now going to introduce prompt number eight. <laughs> I don't like you. Seems to be a theme. Yeah, I know. Apparently don't like you this year. Sorry. Well, it's okay. I'm a little too well done anyway. Oh, God. <laughs> and prompt number eight, now opening. Aliens have given you a super sense, like smelling colors or tasting words. How do you use it? Now, this is one I'm looking forward to, guys. This prompt was given to us by Chris Jackson. You might remember him from our interview back in November. Chris Jackson, who does all the writing for Pathfinder? Yeah. Chris Jackson, who has stuff with Tor? Yeah. Yeah, he's really cool. Yeah, we're trying to he get- He lives on a boat. I know, right? He's living the life, man. And he gave us a prompt. And who knows, we might see more from him in the future. I sure hope to. He's a great guy. He is a great guy. But, uh, so just keep in mind on that prompt, it doesn't have to be a synesthetic sense. You can make up something completely different, like, you know, smision. Yeah, I made a Futurama reference. I'm a nerd. You're done. Okay. You're done. Okay. But anyway, it doesn't have to fall within the bounds of synesthesia, as my challenged co-host just said. You can make this whatever you want it to be. Whatever you think, whatever power you think aliens might have given you, and let us know how you used it. Seriously, you could make yourself the star of the story. Yeah. And then write another story with the other prompt and make us the stars. We're not egotistical at all. No. So have fun with it. Have a lot of fun. I mean, that's the whole point of this. And don't forget to always send us stuff. And we'll use it to feed the masses. Thank you for listening to The Melting Podcast. You can check out our website with submission guidelines and current prompts at themeltingpodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Melting Podcast. Or you could email us themeltingpodcast at gmail.com. The Melting Podcast is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means you're free to copy it and share it as long as you don't change it, don't sell it, and always link back to the website. Sound effects are by the Free Sound Project. And our theme is by Drew Rich Creek. Send us stuff. stuff.